Hey there. Just before we uh, start the show, I want to let you know that we're uh, doing a pledge drive to help cover our hosting and production costs for both Mega 10 Marathon and Combo Chain for the next year. It actually costs us over $500 a year, and so any amount you could contribute would be huge help. Since it's a pledge drive, we've got some special giveaways. Not tote bags, unfortunately, but if you contribute $5, you'll get an episode on The World Ends With You months before it gets released. Contribute 10 bucks, and you'll get that, as well as a special deep dive episode on Persona 5 Royal. But seriously, any amount is a huge help. Uh, to contribute, head over to tinyurl.com backslash Megatenchain. Thanks so much for the support, and as always, for listening to the shows. Welcome to Combo Chain. It's a JRPG Games Club podcast. I'm Paul M. Davis, and today I'm joined by... Your friend and mine, Fletcher. I'm back with more JRPGs that nobody wants to play. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this uh, this episode, I press-ganged you into doing a game that this- neither of us really, I would say, love. But I think there's some pretty interesting things to talk about. I think there's meat on these bones, but yeah, I'll be very upfront that I feel like the Star Ocean series is more misses than hits. I would agree with that. So yeah, we're going to be doing the very first Star Ocean, which was originally released on the SNES, or I guess technically it was released on the Famicom. But uh, yeah, Fletch, you're going to get into that, aren't you? Yeah, it's the most fascinating thing about this is the story that led up to it. Because to start talking about Star Ocean, we've got to go back a ways and talk about Wolf Team. So Wolf Team was a Splinter crew who were under the banner of publisher Telenet. And there's some on and off there. They became independent, got folded back in a few times. That's a lot longer than we want to go into here. And in 1994, they started breaking out of their mostly action games mold, and they were pitching something around the industry they called Tale Fantasia. If you know this time period in video games pretty well, you're likely going to know where this ends up. Wolf Team's Tale Fantasia becomes a partnership with Namco and becomes a late 1995 release, Tales of Fantasia. Again, SNES title... Tales of Fantasia is an impressive technical powerhouse for the system. They cram in a lot of voice acting. Every single action that every single player character has a voice sample associated with it. It has, much like how Golden Sun would be used for a lot of effects and, wow, look at what the Game Boy Advance can do. Tales of Fantasia has impressive sprite work and magic effects in combat. 
It has real-time battles on a 2D plane where you control whichever party member you like, and the AI is moving everyone around as well. No turn-based. It is fully action-based on that 2D plane. Fantasia is a fascinating game that started a series I actually have not played much of. I've pretty much only played Fantasia in the Tales series, actually. I've only played the more recent Tales games, and I kind—I'm of, a fan of them as like fast food JRPGs. I hear very good things about the fact that their combat has leaned in on the whole. It's combo based. It's controlling mm-hmm. the field. It's depending on which title you're talking about, Dynasty Warriors esque, and letting you feel really potent in random battles. I would say that's about right. I, I, there's three different periods of Fantasia. There's like the er, early period. There's the sort of, I don't know, PS2 era where the battle system was pretty boring, but pretty much anything post PS3 has a really dynamic battle system. And they are incredibly trope heavy, but in a really charming way. Yeah. Fast food JRPG is probably the best description I've heard of them in that you're never going to get a deep treatise on anything, but you're likely going to enjoy yourself. And they know that they're lighthearted with the occasional melodramatic scene. Yep. That's, that's, that sums it up pretty much. So Wolf team was trying and pouring their hearts out into Tales of Fantasia. It was a passion project, and Namco fought Wolf Team at every turn, dragging the development out nearly two years in the process. After the whole thing was finished, a mass of the Wolf Team veterans left and founded their own company, and it's one that you're guaranteed to know if you're listening to a JRPG podcast. They're the guys who create nothing but clever, system-driven JRPGs, and they're fucking cursed. Try it. <laughs> so here we are at Star Ocean. They're free of a corporate master, and the team goes hog wild. They want to expand everything that they were stymied on in Fantasia. And for what it's worth, Star Ocean is one of the most impressive releases on the Super Famicom. It's one of two whole games on the system that uses the SDD-1 expansion chip, which was an add-on that was basically used to compress and decrypt a mass of sprite data for when you couldn't really use the standard amounts of memory. And the other title, to put this into perspective, is Street Fighter Alpha 2, a game you might know of because it's a cartridge title that has long load times to decompress every character's sprite sheet before each fight. Here's a... It's always hilarious when you've got a cartridge game that has load times. Yeah, they're very rare. Usually, they tend to be Mahjong titles because it's running through all the AI that tends to be put into custom chips for processing. Uh, I think anybody who's a a Switch player is uh, familiar with this as well. Yeah, Mahjong AI, and to a lesser degree, Shogi, is one of the things that will tax any processor if somebody has put in the time to make it a worthwhile opponent. The Game Boy has some hilariously slow titles for this. We're just going to play this on the train. 
wait two whole minutes for the AI to do anything. <laughs> Not a joke. Back in the day, this was one of the final chips that gave developers of emulators fits. And a giant breakthrough in SNES emulation was when ZSNES, the emulator that never meant a dirty coding trick it didn't love, decided they had figured out a way to make these games playable ahead of their rivals at SNES 9X. They had you dump raw graphics into a folder and just summon those in-game since nobody had figured out the decryption for the chip in real time. Holy shit. It would take, it would decrypt everything into just raw, I think it was BMPs, and you'd have 30-something megs of these files chilling, larger than the ROM itself, and it's just summoning them up at random. But because nobody had the decryption, they had to do this in waves of people going into the game and trying to dump stuff. And so it took multiple attempts and you'd get garbage data and they'd be like, hey, if somebody can bug report this, if you see something that's not coming out, that'd be great. It was the ugliest, dirtiest hack I've ever seen in all of emulator dev. Wow, that's pretty impressive all things considered even if it's a total mess it's it's impressive this is what this is the kind of thing that happened so many times back in the day because both of the teams who worked on those two emulators were just at each other's throats trying to be the ones who cracked something or another Mm -hmm. because they're doing all this weird crap the guys at Triace had to figure out how to reverse engineer a couple system functions of the console, and they just created their own software-based sprite rotation and Mode 7 style effects, standard things graphics do. And as well, they decided they were going to cram in even more voiced lines than Fantasia had. They took a lot of a hit on quality. If you compare the Fantasia sound samples to what's in Star Ocean, it suddenly starts sounding like this. But they also decided to make up for that. What they were going to do was design some events that had surround sound on a cartridge on a system. People are playing on like RF adapter. This game is pretty wild on a technical level. And this is before we even throw in the fact that it has around 80 different some people refer to it as 80 different endings, but it's branches on what at the end of the game because of the affinity system where you can favor certain characters by causing the private actions at different points in the game. If you approach so-and-so party member or you do X thing, like you follow up on a quest or dialogue, you go talk to their loved ones in the world, you make sure to return their hat that fell off in a cutscene. whatever you develop relationships between members of the party. And it lets you put your focus on who you're most interested on in the cast. So they would get more face time and become the person who steps up in a different event. In fact, we can go out of that into some of the systems. Yeah. So star ocean basically has everything that tales of Fantasia did. So yeah, Star Ocean basically has everything that Tales of Fantasia did, which means single-player controlled party member in battles, 
while you have programmable AI that maneuvers the rest of the cast in real-time combat, there's a rudimentary cooking system of con- of consumable items, voice acting, as we as Fletch touched on before, graphical powerhouse effects, and it takes it even further. For example, Fantasia's combat is a flat XY side-scrolling affair, but Star Ocean's is a full battlefield with more positioning from above. Fantasia had cooking. Star Ocean has a mass of different item crafting. You have specialties, which are skills learned from various guilds or instructors in the world to teach party members how to craft the above items. You've got the above-mentioned private actions and branching. And then you've got talents, which are randomly generated traits, which are assigned when a party member first joins as a player character, which uh, determine combat and or crafting abilities. Yeah, you heard right. You can literally save scum what a party member's introductory hobbies are. And uh, basically all but one can be trained later if you don't start with it even though only specific characters ever get the uh, talent for magic. So, hilariously, the team decided, consciously or not, that to fit all of these mechanics in, the thing that, they'd, the thing that they would shortchange would be the AI. <laughs> Which uh, <laughs> is not a good choice, really. Get to be made of, somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Get rid of some of the systems and throw in like a decent AI. The game's pretty much brain dead easy in its uh, original release. Pretty much as soon as you figure out the holes in the combat programming. And uh, it was a response to this that led to the incredibly vicious, but uh, thankfully main, but thankfully mainly optional super bosses in Star Ocean, the second story. Whether or not you want to skip that part is up to you, that last line. <laughs> I'm thinking about it, actually. That's probably the rudest I got in these notes. And No, I- no, because I've got comments of my own. I'm just trying to... <laughs> yeah, in theory, Star Ocean is unique in that it's one of the rare sci-fi-based JRPGs, especially in the 16-bit era. I really feel like maybe... I really feel like you could count on... Maybe not two hands, I don't know, four hands, how many sci-fi JRPGs are out there, really? Which is a shame, because sci-fi is my favorite genre. But (laughs) something that uh, Fletch and I agree on, (laughs) and we discussed before we started recording, is basically the story is uh, you've got the Space Empire and Star Trek-style ships serving a federation of planets. But despite this, most of the gameplay only involves magic and swords, and staying in disguise on just some like backwater-ass planet for 90% of the game. And, you know, the, this is a problem with all the Star Ocean games that I've played, where it's like, ooh, cool, space sci-fi, and then 90% of the game, you're just sitting there on some shitty, like, worst of Star Trek TOS planet. You're wishing for togas. You're wishing at some point it would be the toga planet or the mafia planet. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, that would be great. That'd be great. But instead, it's just the generic, like, 
we're going to wander around Death Valley like with nothing better to do. <laughs> it's a huge bait and switch for something that always advertised itself as a sci-fi game. You will barely, if ever, be on a ship. You're going to start the game there and you're going to be trapped somewhere for the rest of the story. And maybe you'll leave to go confront an enemy in space at the very end. And I understand that if you have a sci-fi JRPG that takes place entirely in space, then basically you end up with uh, infinite space or something like that. And it's just like a space battle simulator. But god damn, they could make, I don't know, it'd be nice to go down and see some like futuristic planets, but everything, all of the Star Ocean games that I've played, basically you're like in some just like backwater and it just turns into a medieval JRPG for the majority of the game. And here's the damning part of that. By the time Star Ocean comes out at the very end of 1995, we've had four fantasy stars. Exactly. And I love Fantasy Star, or at least, you know, one and four and two is pretty good. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> but <laughs> it's like, why can't we have more games like that? Where it's, like, yeah, there's fantasy elements, but it's very firmly a sci fi world. Yeah. It doesn't have to be all shooting all the time. You can have fantasy critters you can have magic like systems star ocean aggressively runs away from what it pitches you up until we get to star ocean 4 and that game has different problems of its own yeah and (laughs) i yeah let's not spoil it but yeah yeah that's got some serious problems and we're not doing the whole Star Ocean series, but it it came up while we were getting notes together for this that, yeah, you never really get what you expect out of Star Ocean. No, you don't. You don't. And, you know, maybe we can touch upon that later on when we give our final impressions. Yeah. Should we uh, move on over to this ripping yarn? Yeah, let's, for what it's worth, I will give Star Ocean credit. The opening chapter is pretty good at what it does and setting tone. Star Ocean starts off as a tale of a plague ripping through a medieval continent. There's a virus that petrifies living beings spreading across the world. Our heroes, Roddick, Millie, and Dorn, end up drawn into it when their village healer is summoned to a nearby settlement to try and treat the plague. A couple days later, a carrier pigeon shows up, and Dorn reads the letter aloud. It basically says, this place is screwed. Do not follow me. I cannot come home. Yeah, so uh, three decide that the doctor clearly doesn't know anything about medicine. (laughs) Does that that sound familiar in this day and age? (laughs) No, yeah. There's a bit that's going around that's just a joke about the ending of Watchmen. It's, yes, clearly a giant crisis would cause everyone to come together, and a figure just labeled 2020 just laughs for three panels straight in Adrian's <laughs> face. 
not to get into uh i've been trying to avoid uh god nobody wants to hear about the pandemic at this point but in every pandemic movie <laughs> that i've ever seen nobody predicted that yeah. that the biggest threat would be people not believing that there actually was a pandemic <laughs> i gotta say that's definitely a new one and yet mm-hmm. is it I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So anyway, back to Star Ocean. So yeah, the three decide the doctor uh, doesn't know shit. And they head to the Plague Village, <laughs> where he turns a stone in front of them, screaming, You jackasses! <laughs> anyway, jokes on the doctor. His carrier pigeon has already spread the virus, infecting Dorn when he touched it. This is all disclosed as they climb a nearby mountain seeking a magic herb that clears all, that cures all ills, which actually does nothing to the disease. Uh, hydro... Yeah! <laughs> Hydrochloroquine? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this is, again, uh, a major dungeon at a lot of events in when you finally reach the peak and two dudes from space beam down, Ilya and Ronix, and they're like... So this is going to sound weird, but we're from space and we'd like to borrow you because their ship has traveled to this planet, which is referred to as Roke. Not that anyone on this planet knows that long story. Don't ask. They have to retcon this in a prequel. And the virus that's here is a bioweapon that's also just been deployed in a galactic war. And they think that Roke is the origin point. So they figure, all right, if we study this, we can cure this. They can. Yeah, they can. (laughs) And in the process of uh, failing to cure it, one of the Rokeans bleeds. And this is how we discover that Rokean blood is uh, normal to them. But uh, for the rest of the galaxy, it's a cloaking device. It blocks specific wavelengths of light. and This is no, real. Yep, we're not fucking with you. That's real. This is also the scene where you learn that phasers can't do shit to Rokians, which is uh, kind of the half-assed reason why you're going to be using swords and stock fantasy weapons throughout the game. And I, I want to be clear here. We're glossing over this, but... Some critters get onto the ship. There's a combat in which the space people and the Roke people take turns attacking them. One of the Rokians gets injured and bleeds on a critter in battle. And everyone on this ship goes, where did they go? And you can see the sprites this whole time. You never see the invisibility. It doesn't come up again for the rest of the game when these people are presumably getting injured. And their ship's computer is, ah, their blood emits a compound that decides that light between this range and this range just can't be affected. And apparently their eyes are not affected by this on planet Roke for some reason. (laughs) Oh, man. And I know... It might seem like we're being harsh on Super Famicom era JRPG, but 
my God, this is also the era of like Final Fantasy VI or the early Shin Megami Tensei's. There were there were games that had not entirely dumbass narratives. And even if you just go with it can be a little hokey, it's just to get us into the plot, that's a very, very weird way to get us into the plot. Especially because, let's just cover this next bit, the entire reason this backwater planet was hit with this bioweapon that statuizes people and apparently leaves them perfectly preserved within their hard candy shell is because a villainous faction wanted to steal all the statues off the planet and harvest their blood to create cloaking tech. This is not a joke. When they realize the blood thing, they start scanning the planet again and the ship goes, Oh yeah, apparently there's now 200,000 less life signatures than when we got here. Don't know how we missed that. Someone has just stolen a bunch of the statues for weapons development. Whoops. Our bad. And for what it's worth, you would think this is a thing that would be, oh no, we've got to be careful. Someone is making invisible ships. The Romulans have just come into existence in our world. No, because a cloaked ship is going to come up to us right now, go, hi, we're the other side in that war. We've been pushed into this by a third party who gave us a bunch of tech. We would like to tell you that the thing you need to know is you're not going to find the origin point of this virus because it happened 300 years ago on this planet. And it just got into the genetics of every living thing on this planet before it was activated. So there is no chance at making a cure. If this scene doesn't happen, I don't know how the entire game's plot happens. And suddenly we're going to go back in time 300 years because we're doing City on the Edge of Forever. So we have gone back in time. And this is the point where the game proper begins. A lot of what we just described is a series of back and forth cutscenes that you can do nothing about for a while on the ship. And this is where we're going to start getting real broad strokes in the plot because this turns into some golden sun. You need to do a fetch quest for this guy to get the ship to get to the place because your actual goal is five steps away. Yeah, pretty much. Nothing, nothing nothing like fetch quests. And so the first of your fetch quests is to begin tracking down an artifact known as the Eye of Truth, which can allegedly grant wishes, which seems like a handy thing to have. And it might also help the party reunite since two people were flying to unknown corners of time and space. They're on the same planet at the same time, it turns out, just on a different continent, which is... Wait, about the same. <laughs> it's just very funny that the plot makes this whole thing about there was an accident and they could be flung anywhere. And when you eventually find out, it's just, no, they're over there. <laughs> yeah. They don't find the uh, Eye of Truth yet, but they do meet its guardians, which are three holograms known as runes. Surprising the people the crew meet in this area... And uh, yeah, our party keeps on growing and uh, none of them really matter unless you happen to take a shine to one of them. 
given the private actions and all. The runes refuse to give them the eye of truth, and in fact, they make them swear not to return. But they do say, so y'all know you're out of sync with this time period, and we can see that. In exchange for going away forever, the runes tell our crew where the other members of the story are, the city of Van. The path to get there leads us by a village where another spaceship has landed. And that's where we find out that the third party who seeded the bioweapon have arrived. So when we get to Van, this is where we get the game-spanning fetch quest and meet the person who is our antagonist for the most of this. Because the city of Van contains the rest of the party. Everyone has met back up from the future. Hooray! It also contains a king who has been fighting the demon king Asmodeus, who was, we will find out, the original host for the stone virus. Luckily, this king has been fighting off invasions from the demon world for ages, and so he knows a lot about it. You might notice none of this sounds sci-fi, and that's because fuck you, it's Star Ocean. (laughs) This is also where we meet the inventor Welch Vineyard. Yes, there is a major character in this franchise named after American Grape Juice, who I am only mentioning because she is some flavor of immortal technical genius who is a recurring character in every Star Ocean game. If you're playing the remake, you can actually recruit her as a player character at this point. But imagine if Guinan from The Next Generation was a blonde girl who was horny for protagonists. That's Welch Vineyard. (laughs) The King of Van tells us that you can only open portals to the demon world from the other side, which is how they haven't been able to retaliate. But the Eye of Truth does exist, and it could get us there. So to actually get the runes to release it to us, we will need to seek out what are basically crests from every one of the four major kingdoms in the world for their artifacts. And the King of Van assigns us a quick test. We do it. We save his kingdom. And he's, all right, here you go. Here's a map to the other three. Have fun. So yeah, each king uh, puts you through trial and uh, gives you some piece of a puzzle. When you're done with this, you return to the runes who uh, continue to be dicks. But they say, okay, sure, give it your best shot. Those items you're holding mean we have to give you a chance. You are then immediately deposited into the Techno Dungeon, which is not the actual name, but, you know. It's suddenly a maze of computers and everything when this has just been fantasy for hours at this point. I know, I know. Somebody somebody got the memo. Oh yeah, this is a sci-fi game. Do you know how long uh-huh. it took us to design metal sprites? <laughs> <sighs> so yeah, the final riddle before the Eye of Truth ends with an answer that shakes the Starfleet due to their core. Why is Earth the answer? It turns out that the Ro- Rokians got their development jump-started with another race. The... M- <laughs> this is the best reaction i could have hoped for the the moi (laughs) Uh, they arrived here after a portal experiment on earth went wrong moi as in people from the legendary continent of moo 
God, what is it with JRPGs and their hard on for the Lost Continent of Moo? Here's the thing. I can entirely see a Lost Continent, a Lost Empire, whatever, being a thing you play with. It happens repeatedly in the Mana series, and I think it works well there, even though that's another franchise that has some problems. But they also never go out of their way to say, this is explicitly this lost continent from Earth Legend, and that is why the whole thing means you, the people in the present day playing this, did this. You must change and be better. No, they just go like, the the Mana Empire was a tech empire, and maybe we'll make some references in a localization that are like, yep, might have been America. All right. Yep. And they <laughs> only much. did that once. <laughs> <laughs> the Eye of Truth was designed to replicate that experiment and take them home. Instead, it opened a path to the demon world, and it got them all wiped out. The Guardians' runes sealed it away and gave keys to the world in case we somehow needed that for something. Thank God nobody destroyed this cursed device. Um, by the way, Roddick is descended from the Muans, Muans, because, of course, someone has to be. Later on, we will actually get to play as his ancestor and do a retcon where, in this part of the game you get what are supposed to be legendary weapons, laser swords that the space guys will be going. This just seems like the same tech as our lightsabers that aren't, but really primitive. And so this is made even funnier when you get to play as that ancestor and leave these swords here. And it will turn out that takes place literally 30 years before this. Oh, man. Yeah. That prequel was a very bad idea for a lot of reasons. (laughs) (laughs) The party has the eye. They have this portal device that's only set to hell, and they event horizon it. They find a dimensional research laboratory sitting here completely fine inside the otherwise blasted hellscape of the demon world. Asmodeus lives here and is a real prick. This is where 80% of the way through the game, we finally get the reveal of the Fargetians. (laughs) Long story short, the third party who we've been seeing in mysterious shadow for the whole game are dicks from the planet Farget, a place even more hostile than the demon world. They basically created a few Khan Noonien Sings, one of whom was Asmodeus, one of whom we're going to be introduced to in maybe 30 minutes. Asmodeus, being an illegal genetic freak designed to survive on a hell world, goes mad from all the contradictions of his life and existence, breaks into the space-time laboratory, which they have for some reason. They have laws against genetic experimentation, but they're totally willing to play God. And he hijacks the entire building landing himself in the demon world. From here, he discovers he can make portals to the planet Roke and the planet Roke alone, and he does so for ages with no real goal other than spite and chaos. Now, in real history, the events of things that happened before our party went back in time, this is where Farget finally gets two people teleported in here, 
they murder Asmodeus and take his blood sample to develop into the bioweapon 300 years later. But we've gone back in time. So the two people who arrive take his blood, go, oh crap, it's the cops, cheese it, and leave him alive. So your party members, the Federation people specifically, decide, and I'm not joking, if we leave him alive, it's a time paradox. So we need to kill him and take his blood. You do. <laughs> yeah, you would think that a uh, cure is made and everybody's going to return to their own time. And uh, the space folk take off in their ship to further explore the final frontier. And then you hit the credits, right? No, you'd be wrong. So Asmodeus wasn't the only genetic super freak Fargate made, but the next uh, successor in line, a man named G. Revorce, decided to conquer the planet as a dictator. As a result, Fargate is in a state of war because the populace didn't go peacefully under Madman's thumb. However, he does have all the buttons that launch bad things, and he's trying to get a hold of Earth because it's much nicer than Fargate. The Federation, because your men are back in the time period they're supposed to be, hears all this because of Revorce's declaration of war. And he go, they basically say, Ronix, you did ignore our orders and go back in time, but you're also our last hope. Kirk it up, use whatever time travel shenanigans you want to save our ass, and... They immediately go back in time and pick up Millie and Roddick from the planet Roke. And that you can also grab the rest of the party if you like. But it says so much about how much influence those people have on the story that we haven't named a single one of them. <laughs> and this is where your mission becomes assassinate G. Revorce on the orders of the Earth government. You do. Yep. And finally, for real this time, everyone returns to their own planet and or time period. Millie and Roddick marry. Ilya and Ronix also do. Ronix, who has now brought literal magic to the Federation because of things he learned back in time, as well as carrying out the kill shot on G, gets promoted to Admiral. The end. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about the fallout from uh, all this? Yeah. For what it's worth, Star Ocean was a major success. It put Triace on the map immediately. They would be, until the modern day, and technically this is still true, a studio who have only ever worked on JRPGs. They got to do things their way. They continued to work with a lot of very talented people, and within two years and change, they would have Star Ocean, the second story, out on the original PlayStation in the middle of 1998. To this day, the Star Ocean franchise continues, although every title after the second was met with extreme controversy. In short, Star Ocean 3 has one of the most infamous endings in gaming in that it retcons the entire franchise to a point. Star Ocean 4's director wanted to make a hentai game and was told to shut up and make a Star Ocean, and his original plan shines through in uncomfortable ways. And Star Ocean 5 came as a cash-in 
by the mobile game company who bought Triace and began converting them into a license factory on a shoestring budget. At this point in time, Star Ocean only exists as a mobile game, which was so popular worldwide, it was shut down in every country not named Japan. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Man, I remember when Star Ocean 5 came out for the PS4. That got, I think, some of the most abysmal reviews I've ever seen in my life. It was a very bad sign when the Japanese release happened, and... Generally, there are a couple ways you can try and figure out what the Japanese take on a thing is as it comes out. You can look at message boards, 2chan, etc. What a lot of people did that I knew was watch the review score crater on Amazon.co.jp. And the reviews were pretty scathing from anyone who had bought it, saying... The game was short. The game was incredibly thin on a budget. And insultingly enough, Star Ocean 5 was probably the first one that really went all in on this is a space series in space. The problem is it had a budget of 3,000 yen, 2,700 of which was spent on Suntory Boss coffees for the office. (laughs) And so there are major cutscenes that occur off screen, which you don't even get to see because the camera is looking at your party's reactions as they all stare into a monitor that is behind you. And they just narrate, oh God, this war is so terrible. Yeah, there's all those lasers. This is really sick to watch, but man, I wish that I didn't have to see this. It's incredibly abysmal and people were not fond of it. However, They did use most of the assets to create Star Ocean Anamnesis, I believe is the name, which is the mobile game that is still running and is the current state of the franchise. Yeah, yeah. And Tri-Ace has been involved in a number of really great games. Not unlike the last episode that you and I did together, they were heavily involved in Lightning Returns. They were, in fact, the primary developers on Lightning Returns, and they ghost-developed Final Fantasy XIII, too. That was a Mm -hmm. project of their design. Square would use them as a contract developer for extra handiwork through a lot of the HD era and the PS3 generation. Yeah, and even even games that they did that were failed experiments like uh, Resonance of Fate, I don't think that's a great game, but it's certainly an interesting game. They did a lot of interesting stuff. Triace is the textbook definition of cult classic developer, because if you liked Resonance of Fate, you were into Resonance of Fate. Yeah. and I, 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 I did not love it, but <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm very glad... It has the 4K port it does now. Yeah. Were you a fan? I have not played it yet. I have been told that it is up my alley in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. However, I stayed away from it at the time because this was the same era of Tri-Ace that gave us some of the uncomfortable scenes of Star Ocean 4. Nappy time comes to mind. Oh my god. If... I were editing, this would be where I would slice in that audio, but you're not a sadist, I don't think. 
<sighs> we'll see if uh, we'll see if I have time. <laughs> For what it's worth, we did eventually get Star Ocean One in the U.S. It had a PSP remake known as Star Ocean First Departure, and the second game got a similar title. But the game was pretty much the same in a gameplay way. You got an expansion of the branches. They added a few more characters. Welch Vineyard became a player character in that one. It retconned a few things to be in line with later titles and the upcoming Star Ocean 4. And the absolutely not controversial move of entirely new art design for every character in the series for both the first departure and second journey, I think was the subtitle that definitely pissed off a lot of people. Because if you remember what late nineties art design was in a lot of JRPGs, and then you think about late two thousands design in characters or artists around it, does some different things, especially with female characters. Yeah, I would believe it. I would definitely believe it. Millie became softer somehow. Don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's probably worth uh, mentioning that it recently was also ported to the Switch, which I don't recommend you you pick up. For what it's worth... They've been trying to get the Star Ocean series back in print. There's that port. I don't know if the second remake has been done. Do you know that offhand? Not off the top of my head, but I don't think it did. It has yeah, been. I think it was just First Departure. And yeah. they've been porting the HD era games to PC, starting with the very controversial Until the End of Time, number three. But it's it's kind of walking dead now. Star Ocean is just owned by a mobile game company who have a mobile game that's successful in one place and they're just putting out some cash-in re-releases everywhere else. If they decide they're going to greenlight another console title, no one has heard any whispers as of yet. I'd be pretty surprised at this point. Yeah, uh, 5, which bears probably the single stupidest subtitle in JRPG history, Faithlessness and Integrity. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) um, Is, it was treated very poorly, it was not given any development resources, and it probably wouldn't have been if it weren't for the fact that they could reuse so many of the assets for the mobile game that actually funds them. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll see where that goes in 2021 because I don't know that any of those ports sold particularly well. I do wonder very much what Triace thought when their stuff came out at a full price with a 4K remaster and they advertise it as such. All of these ports in their PC versions describe them as 4K remaster in the title. <laughs> Sort of like how the Resident Evil games used to have Resident Evil slash Biohazard slash Kanji slash. (laughs) But all this happens. They have very poor sales numbers. And then in the middle of 2020 in a pandemic, Atlas goes, hey, we put a single persona on PC and it became one of the best selling games in our company's history. Yeah. Yep. So that's got to be demoralizing. 
Yeah, I would like to see Trice develop something that is not Star Ocean and is not a mobile game, but I don't have a lot of hope. And another thing point. that's incredibly curious about this is how much they're allowed to touch of their back catalog at this point, because Triace also did the fantastic Valkyrie profile franchise, but we're not sure if they have the rights to that because Squaresoft was also involved and Enix, depending on era. So company developers had been talking about for years. Yeah, we totally had plans for a third game focused on the third sibling of the Valkyrie Trinity, and it's never come up. And I'm not even sure if those people are still at the company. Guess we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a real shame. I haven't played any of the Valkyrie profiles, but I've heard really good things about them. Uh, I would say they're the standouts of what Triace did prior to their surviving on contract dev era in the HD games. Valkyrie Profile 2 is much like how we're talking about how Star Ocean was a technical powerhouse that pushed the SNES to its limits. Valkyrie Profile 2 was one of those titles for the PS2, and it's still an emulator benchmark to this day because of that. You have to add that Add that to uh, my uh, very long list of games to do on the show. Yeah. Have you heard of the recent indie RPG action title, Indivisible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've played that. I've played parts of it. Indivisible is very clearly aping Valkyrie Profile. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I like it. I just haven't. Yeah, it's it's a much more polished version of that in terms of gameplay and combat. I don't know when you played Indivisible. I know it had a rough launch. Recently, pretty recently. Because you probably got to it after some of the bug fixes. Yeah, yeah. I have usually about five games that I'm playing simultaneously, so. (laughs) Been there. Yep. (laughs) Is there anything uh, we should say to wrap up here? I don't know. We've been coming down pretty hard on uh, <laughs> Star Ocean in general. I would say that I do feel like the real-time battles are impressive for the time. And I think t- technically it's impressive for the time. Yeah. It's very hard for me to fault the first pair of Star Ocean games. They're some they're a very talented team's passion project and whether or not i like them clearly the fact that they got made is a bonus it started a company whose work i love they got to experiment they laid a groundwork that other people would take from i just think this franchise is an insane bait and switch and that has made me bitter ever since no i i totally feel you and i guess one thing one other thing that i'd add is can we please have more like legitimate sci-fi jrpgs we're getting there it's just that at this point those take some weird forms we have the near games 
That's true. That's true. But then we also have the Neptunia games. <laughs> and sci-fi has sci-fi has turned into more than just Fantasy Star, and also Fantasy Star has turned into a loot-driven MMO. So that was a take I didn't see coming back in 2000. <sighs> yeah, and that's something that the less I say about it, the better. <laughs> yeah. Being, I being will, an old-school uh, Fantasy Star fan. I will not be able to pinch hit for you on a PSO episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, no. And uh, it will not be happening. (laughs) But yeah, um, I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I think I've said it all. Love the company, hate the creation. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to uh, close it on out here. Is there anything that you would like to plug before we wrap it up here? If you want to find out what I'm up to in a variety of other places, you can check my website, hellscaper.com. Cool. And you host a number of podcasts as well. And there are so many of them. That is why I'm just directing people to the place with a hub page. Because <laughs> I'm up to seven. Wow. In terms of editing and producing and actually hosting. Oh my god, I have no idea where you find the time. <laughs> this is going to be my third recording, or this is my second recording within 12 hours. I have another one in a few. Holy shit. Wow. I am going to... much. <laughs> I'm going to let you go then. Maybe you can get some rest before uh, the next recording. But uh, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on once again, Fletch. And uh, yeah, yeah, and you're always welcome. As far as plugs on my end i would say check out my other podcast mega 10 marathon it's game by game oh thank you and fletch has been a guest on that number of times it's a game by game journey through the shin megami tensei and persona games we'll be having an episode on the first devil survivor actually by the time this comes out that episode will be out but check it out And yeah, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you can rate and review podcasts, that'd be much appreciated. Let's see. There's Patreon under Mirror Image Studios. Anything you can kick down would be a huge help. And yeah, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. It's under Combo Chain. And I think that's about it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Fletch. Let's do this again soon. Absolutely. And I will see you and the listeners whenever that is, for whatever that is. Okay, sounds good. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.